Hi, I'm Dr. Kat Lewitsky, and welcome to Site Confidential, where we cover no-nonsense mental health discussions. This is episode one of what will hopefully be many more to come. The back-to-school year season has officially commenced, and I wanted to cover ways you can help your child manage their anxiety when returning back to school. But before I go into all of that, I want to provide a brief introduction on myself. I'm a clinical psychologist, and when I graduated with my doctorate in psychology, at the commencement ceremony, I made a vow on stage that I would work to reduce the stigma surrounding mental illness and support my patients through their personal growth. And since taking that oath at graduation, I have truly attempted to be a guide for my patients. I am the owner and clinic director of Bright Pine Behavioral Health, a private mental health facility located in Metro Detroit. We have two locations in Oakland County. The first was in Clarkston, which is more North Oakland County, and the other is in West Bloomfield, which opened almost a year ago, located more South Oakland County. And our clinic is unique because we offer services for both therapy and psychological assessments. We see a variety of patients as young as toddlers through adulthood, struggling with emotional difficulties like anxiety, depression, and bipolar, along with executive functioning or neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD and processing or learning difficulties, behavioral concerns, and autism. And I'm also a mother of two young children. My son is four and a half and my daughter is two. But I know that the clinic would be nothing without the dedication of our wonderful clinicians and therapists. I supervise most of the therapists at our office, and each one truly brings unique talent and expertise. So let's jump into it. Today, I want to cover anxiety in children. The school year here in Michigan typically starts right after Labor Day, and sometimes even earlier in some districts. And a new school year brings on new transitions for kids, which can be an adjustment and cause some nerves to flutter or an increase and spike in anxiety. My goal for this podcast is to freely speak both as a professional, but also a mother to further my reach with individuals who are struggling. So at the clinic, we do see a lot of children struggling with anxiety and with children, it can often be secondary to another disorder. Like it can be secondary to ADHD or autism or can be a reaction to something like a new event or change of environment, such as starting the new school year. And when we think of anxiety in the traditional sense, typical symptoms most likely come to mind like fear and worry, perhaps shyness or avoidance of a particular situation. But with children, they don't usually communicate their anxieties in straightforward language. They're not gonna come up to you and say, I'm scared but rather it comes out as anger and irritability. Emotional outbursts or meltdowns are pretty apparent with children. Anxiety symptoms can also include trouble sleeping, like the child may want the parent to sleep next to them, or they might wake up frequently throughout the night. We tend to see physical symptoms like fatigue and tiredness, headaches or stomach aches, and they might even display some issues with overeating or no appetite at all, and perhaps even going to the back bathroom frequently too. Some anxious children 
may keep their worries to themselves. And this can lead to an issue because then the symptoms are missed or the child becomes misunderstood or misdiagnosed. What we tend to mostly see, though, is that anxious children become argumentative or sometimes even physically aggressive, or they could become even very clingy and resistant. And sometimes parents even tell me that their child may ask the same question over and over again very repetitively or display some type of perseverative thought pattern. But this is how children communicate. The brain is not fully developed until 25 years old. So that's why we see children through adolescence acting out impulsively, particularly when emotions are high. And throughout these last two years with the COVID pandemic, there has been a tremendous impact on mental health, especially among our youth. So what the research shows is that up to 50 to 80% of all mental health issues start before we even reach adulthood, 50 to 80%. What this means is that most of the mental health issues you're struggling with as an adult could have been prevented had there been proper coping skills in place from a young age. And we've all been through so much change and adjustment in the last two years. And this is most unfortunate for the children because they're the ones that are incredibly vulnerable. And just last fall, a state of emergency was issued for our children's mental health. Mental health issues pre-COVID pandemic was at 8% and has most recently been reported as high as 30 to I've seen even 33% or one in three people now struggling with anxiety and depression. And what's even more concerning is that emergency room visits for mental health concerns and suicide rates have also been increasing among youth. And kids have, they've been struck with these drastic changes and isolations over the last couple years. And now a new school year is approaching and there's going to be more change happening because now they're gonna be out of their summer routine and have to adjust to the new rules and expectations of a new classroom. And I was was actually just reading an article this past week that delved into the effects of mask wearing. So when wearing a facial covering, data showed a decrease in social emotional processing and functioning. What this means is that when you're surrounded by other people who are wearing the facial coverings, that the face coverings lower a person's ability to read or discriminate emotions. What's happening to the brain essentially is a trauma response. The brain goes into fight or flight mode and the amygdala, which is involved with experiencing emotions, perceives these faces as threatening. The fight or flight response describes our physiological reaction to a threatening event where we literally want to either attack or want to run away from the perceived danger. And during this experience, so when we're experiencing some type of threat or danger or in that fight or flight response, cortisol is released and cortisol is a stress hormone. So wearing the mask is going to lower a person's ability to understand essentially nonverbal cues. So I'm just going to reiterate and say this again. Facial coverings can trick the amygdala into experiencing a fight or flight trauma response. And I'm going to read a direct quote from the research article. A mask obstructing a face limits the ability of people of all ages to infer emotions expressed by facial features, 
but the difficulties associated with the mass use are significantly pronounced in children aged between 3 and 5 years old. These findings are of essential importance as they suggest that we live in a time that may potentially affect the development of social and emotion reasoning in young children's future social abilities should be monitored to assess the true impact of the use of masks, end quote. It's also important to note that from birth to age five, a child's brain develops more than at any other time in their life. An early brain development has a lasting impact on a child's ability to learn and succeed in school and life. So therefore, it's important for us to truly conceptualize how these last two years have impacted young children as they return back to school. In order to do that, we would need to get a baseline to really truly understand the long-term effects of everything. So how do we get a baseline? Well, I specialize, as I mentioned before, in neuropsychological and psychological testing, and the best way to understand a person's pre-morbid functioning would be to assess before the event that caused the changes that took place. So the assessment would need to take place before the event of change and then after, like a pre-test, post-test type thing. So going back to the fall of 2020, my son was starting a new preschool. And at that time, everyone was high mask wearing. It's a time that I don't really want to remember or relive, but talking about it is significant in remembering how impactful this event was. Here we had two, three, and four-year-olds screaming at drop-off, unable to have their parents walk them to class, not even on the first day of school. There was no parent orientation. And it truly scars you as a parent. Like thinking back, I recall, like, did I do something wrong? Did I cause harm in my child? Or rather, did we as a society? Because we won't truly know how badly this affected our children's neurodevelopment until a longitudinal study comes out years later. But I will say, though, that these are common concerns reported by parents and behaviors by children that are frequently seen in our office. We know that changes or transitions can bring on or exacerbate symptoms of anxiety. And now that a new school year is approaching, some anxieties might come up, be it social anxiety or separation, which leads to other emotional dysregulations. So now let's talk about what you can do as a parent to help your child. As I may have previously mentioned, all communication is meaningful. Kids have been through so much change in the last two years and it's important for us, first and foremost, to be empathetic of that. Depression and anxiety looks much different in children, and kids may become more argumentative or exhibit more behavioral difficulties rather than tearfulness or withdraw. With adults, typically with adults, we see more of that withdrawal, that tearfulness, and with children, it's more of these like overt behaviors of these difficulties that they're experiencing. So first, do your research on a clinic for your child, and contact them to get your child in. Do your research to find out about the clinic and the therapist and make sure that it's going to be a good fit. And perhaps later we can even cover some questions um, in a future episode on what to ask before um, entering a therapy session or what to ask when calling a clinic. And while you're waiting to see a therapist, continue to talk with your child and ask open-ended questions to better understand 
what's going on. So let's go into possibly what are open-ended questions. Open-ended questions prompt at the beginning of a longer conversation by asking questions starting with how, why, and what if. Whereas closed-ended questions can be answered with a single word answer, such as yes or no. For example, instead of asking, how are you? Which leaves an option for a short and closed response from the child like, I'm good. You could ask, tell me about what you did today. Or what did you eat for lunch? What game did you play at recess? And with who? Be empathetic. When the child is afraid and says, I don't want to go to school. Don't dismiss their concerns and fears by saying, you'll be fine, or it's okay, there's nothing to worry about. And sometimes our own emotions as parents get to the best of us, and you don't want that to happen where you could react or explode on your own child. If your child fell off their bike and they were crying, you would come over and console them and make sure that they were okay. But why don't we do the same when our child is crying from anxiety and worry? Don't be so quick to react negatively. Instead, help them to feel more secure. Validate their feelings by saying something like, I know that's so hard. Listening to them and acknowledging their concerns will allow them to feel more secure. Grounding exercises can also integrate mindful coping behaviors. This one in particular is my favorite because it uses all five senses. Ask your child to look around the room and find five things they can see, four things they can feel, three things they can hear, two things they can smell, and one thing they can taste. This exercise can work to calm down oneself when emotions start to rise and levels of frustration are increasing. And you can do some positive affirmations with them. Ask your child to list some of the things that make them special along with what you really find amazing in your child. And be direct with your communication. So when you need your child to do something and you're on that time crunch with all that hustle and bustle of trying to get out the door on that first day of school, don't attempt to give them a request by asking a question because this allows your child an opportunity to decline. For example, if it's time to get the shoes on and head out the door, Don't say, can you get your shoes on? Instead, you can say, time to get on your shoes. And you don't want to use okay at the end because that also adds a question at the end and it changes the framing of it. Time to get your shoes, okay, versus time to get your shoes. This doesn't allow your child an opportunity to decline to your request. Also, constantly reminding our kids can be overbearing and nagging. We can say, don't forget your water bottle. Don't forget your backpack. Don't forget your lunchbox. Instead, we can try, I wonder if you're going to be thirsty at school today. Because the later example is prompting them to get the water bottle without a negative tone. Our own behaviors and modes of communication, our own voice, our own even nonverbal cues can actually significantly impact our children and steer their day from one way versus another. And what we want to try to prevent in that morning hustle and bustle is that emotional meltdown. Having to give your kids excessive reminders and feeling frustrated about it could be better understood as a sign that your current system isn't working. So 
this is something that you may have to also evaluate. Reminders are the part of the iceberg, and this is the part that's visible above the water, and it's more important to address what's really underneath and what's really happening in that system. Kids might need visual prompts, so you can have a checklist even by the door next to their things with pictures. Bag, check. Water bottle, check. Lunchbox, check, and so on. It's also allowing your child to build executive functioning skills they will need later in life to keep them organized. Give your child choices. Choices allow a person to feel in control. Giving children choices helps them feel like they have some power and control over what they do. It's also an important skill that develops them for more independent behaviors. You can ask them questions in the morning. Do you want eggs or oatmeal for breakfast? Or if you're going school shopping, do you want the Spider-Man backpack or the Batman backpack? I allow my kids to be involved in the back-to-school shopping. They pick out their backpacks, their lunch boxes, their clothes, their shoes. Just like you probably feel better wearing a certain fabric or color, so does your child when they have some choice in their day. And having choice is going to allow them to feel confident, and it will build on that bond to parent to child. But when you're giving them these choices, you don't want to overwhelm them. You don't want to say, pick out the shoes that you want. By narrowing it down to two choices, it's going to reduce it from being so overwhelming, and they're still going to feel in control by making that final decision in the end. You should also provide them with with as much consistency and predictability as possible. Kids thrive with schedules and routines, and you can start their routine with providing the same breakfast every day to start their day with some type of expectations. Perhaps even lay out the clothes the night before so that no one is scrambling to find the pants that match with the shirt or fighting over wanting to wear this shirt and not that shirt. And you really want to strive to keep everything structured and organized. Everything should have a place or a home within the home. Bag hung up by the door, lunchbox on the counter. If your home is one that tends to have more clutter or maybe you're more of a pack rat yourself, Be aware on how this affects mental health. It's been shown over and over again that our surroundings play a huge role in our mental well-being. An environment that's minimal, clean, and organized helps us to feel calmer and content. And the less stuff you own, the less clutter that you have in your space, both literally and inside your mind, is also going to affect your child's well-being too. We're constantly being surrounded by word overload from social media, Signs while we're driving, in our own home, with labels on every product, and a clean space and place is going to allow for a freer mind. And you can get your child involved in the restructuring process of the home. While you're purging and reorganizing everything, teach them those skills and be the model. You are the parent and you're the person that they're learning from. So if the child is attending a new school this year, I recommend visiting the school at least three times if you can before the new school year, whether this is either inside or outside of the classroom. But you can walk around outside on the campus and bring a treat. This part is important. You do want to bring some type of treat or a cupcake or cookie, something rewarding for them. This concept that I'm going to talk about is using basic operant conditioning, positive reinforcement, which stems from behavioral therapy. So positive reinforcement means giving something to a person as a reward, 
So they then associate the action with the reward and then this leads them to doing it more. It's going to increase the desired response. Positive reinforcement refers to the presentation of some type of desirable or pleasant stimulus like a treat or a cupcake after the behavior. And then that desirable stimulus or treat is going to reinforce that behavior, making it more likely that it's going to reoccur again in the future. So if you can take your child to the new school, stop at some bakery beforehand that's close by to the school and eat a cupcake on the playground. Eating the cupcake is going to release dopamine receptors in the brain, which are the neurotransmitters associated with pleasure and reward. So the child is going to link these feelings of good they are receiving from eating the cupcake or the treat to being at the school. So we're going to try to associate these feelings of eating the cupcake, you have the treat, and then you're also doing something that's rewarding by being at the school and you're linking these two things together. If you can't physically go to the school, maybe you can drive by it, continuously talk about it with your kids, even find photos or videos of it online, go to the school's website, show this to your child. You want to make this a positive thing. Maybe even bring your own yearbook out and talk to them about one of your first days of school. You also want to try to provide your child with opportunities to connect with others, like extracurriculars, play dates, going to the park, perhaps reaching out to their teacher and speaking with them to see how they can help connect your child with other kids in the class. Something this year that I've done with my son are bracelets, like, you know, those friendship bracelets that we all made in fourth or fifth grade. I bought some string. I had him pick out the colors he wanted for his bracelet and everyone in our family has one. So the idea behind it is that when he's feeling sad or missing his family, he can rub his bracelet and and think of us. And I told him when I'm feeling sad, I'm going to rub my bracelet and think of him. So it's it's pretty symbolic. It's giving him the sense that just because mom and dad aren't here with me at school, that doesn't mean I'm out out of sight, out of mind. My parents are still here with me and I can still feel safe. We're also putting together a photo album that he can keep in his backpack. And of course, again, I did make him part of this process. So he picked out the photo book he wanted. He wanted a blue one. And we included pictures of our family from vacation this last summer, him and his sister, um, our cat, his friends, his grandparents, because this is making him feel included. And it's reminding him of all these people that love him. So it's going to take time for these routines and changes to be put into place before we see results. And unfortunately, sometimes things get worse before they get better. It's not a size fits all. You may have to do a lot of trial and error to figure out what's really going to work for your child and in your home. But if a child's resistance to school is becoming so overwhelming and prolonged, they should be evaluated further by a mental health professional. I specialize in academic and psychological assessments, and fall is a busy time of year for evaluations. Parents usually call because of attention and behavioral issues, and what we might sometimes find is that the child has anxiety or depression and is actually struggling to adjust to the new school environment. Getting your child evaluated really provides an encompassed understanding of a person's strengths and weaknesses, and it allows you to assess what is really going on diagnostically to best treat and work through those concerns. I want to end by saying that being a parent is by far the hardest job on the planet. 
If you feel like you're failing, I can assure you that you're not. While you may feel stuck just by listening today, it means that you are trying to find strategies to move forward. I'm a mom. I felt that too, but feeling stuck is not failure. Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Psych Confidential podcast, share it with others, or leave a rating and review. You can find more information on my clinic page, which is brightpinepsychology.com. And to catch all the latest information from me, you can follow me on social media at drkat underscore psyd, D-R-K-A-T underscore P-S-Y-D. I hope you found this information useful and I wish everyone a great back to school year. Until next time, this is Dr. Kat.